0: I'm Shai Shack, and I'm Carmela Frachbosh. You're listening to Femme FM, a feminist radio show centering QT BIPOC femmes on CKDU eighty-eight point one FM in Halifax, Nova Scotia.
1: In this week's episode, we're talking about classical
0: music and racial identity. In our conversations, we explore the intersections of immigration, racism, erasure, elitism, and assimilation within classical music spaces.
1: You'll hear about representation, the good immigrant, bad immigrant dichotomy, and genre hierarchies.
0: The music we chose today is very intentional. We want to showcase the incredible brilliance specifically of Black and Indigenous musicians who are systemically erased and devalued within music spaces, specifically classical music spaces. We hope
1: you enjoy this musical magic as these artists push back and reclaim a space that is theirs. And we challenge you to scroll through your iTunes, your Spotify, and reflect upon the artists you support, value, and respect.
0: Mm -hmm. Chris Dirksen is a two-spirit cellist and composer from northern Alberta who blends traditional, classical, and electronic sounds. Aida Strings was founded in 2005 in Virginia by violinist and vocalist Tona Brown. The ensemble's goal is to showcase the talents of black string players.
1: Tona Brown is an incredible violinist and vocalist and is the first black trans woman to play Carnegie Hall. Tanya Tagak is a Polaris prize-winning Inuit throat singer from Cambridge Bay Nunavut. Her newest album, Retribution, focuses on important issues and struggles related to protecting the land and water and missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. So I'm coming into this conversation holding a very complex relationship with my violin and with classical music. I'm a second-generation immigrant and a mixed-race Iranian person, so I'm holding this tension between the love of playing violin and a deep rage and heartbreak about not having access to learning my traditional cultural music. I often feel frustrated by the lack of representation I have of my traditional cultural and my traditional classical music. I resent the ways in which classical music is held as fine art and artistic prestige which is completely classed, raced, and gendered. Classical music is a genre rooted in white supremacy. It maintains classed violence, its main focus entertaining the upper class, all while being aggressively committed to the concept of intellect and creativity from a colonial, white nationalist, European tradition, which I may remind folks is forever saturated in theft and violence. Sometimes I felt so free playing the violin, but other times I just felt so smothered and panicked, as if the music I was playing and ingesting was pushing me to center Western and European standards of art and culture as my own, as influential, as important, while strategically placing thoughts of Iranian, Jewish, and Baha'i art and culture as less desirable, less beautiful, less valid. I often reflect on the ways in which assimilationist pressures and feelings of failing at being fully Canadian influenced the reasons I continued playing classical music for so long. I think that the good immigrant-bad immigrant dichotomy is such a forceful and jarring reality for me currently that I work to challenge and shift. I just didn't have the skills to navigate or balance that when I was younger. Today I want to hold the power of music as resistance to these dichotomies and to these hierarchies. I want to acknowledge the joy, healing, rage, fight, and revolution that exists there. I need to hold the reality that music is born from resistance and oppression. And this music is systemically devalued, delegitimized, stripped of value, erased, stolen, appropriated, diluted, and then commodified. This is anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism. This is the hierarchy of genre. This is the calculated historical deleting of jazz history and legacies of Black musical genius. This is the deliberate historical and current eradication of Indigenous musical brilliance. I ache for home music, music of my diasporas. Music that rattles all the parts of me. Music that shelters vulnerable, soft, traumatized parts of me. Music that travels oceans, leaps over borders. Music that sounds like a wooden dreidel, the swish of my BB skirt. The sound of Chai being stirred. Music that holds my stories with reverence, worth devotion.
0: Isaiah Farakbash is a mixed-race Iranian jazz musician and theoretical ecologist in training, studying at the University of Guelph. He loves composition, spontaneous co-creation, and nerding out. He hosts With Strings, a radio show on CFRU 93.3 FM in Guelph. It features bowed strings in modern jazz while speaking to issues of race and gender in music.
2: Isaiah, hey! Hey, Carmel. I'm so excited to be talking to you because you are my sibling, and we have some inside jokes. And uh, also yeah. we have a similar experience with navigating music and classical music and also the ways that those intersect with our identities. And so I'm just really, yeah, this is I'm just jazzed, as some might say.
3: Me too. <laughs> so classical music, um, it's been part of me from many early years. And first thing I want to say about classical music is that it's interesting that we define Western classical music as classical music because Mm. classical music is present in all cultures. And classical, like when it comes to art in general, it usually refers to art that's an exemplary standard. Mm -hmm. So it's the well-established and traditional forms of art that people look back to and try to emulate because it's just very entrenched and it's defined as good within that culture. So Mm -hmm. um, there's classical music, in all sorts of cultures, it's, it's, it's interesting that we have that kind of Western dominance over a word such as classical. Classical music and its Western classical and its, its, its relation to me has been mainly in training. So I was trained classically as a cellist from, I think, around age five, I was playing classical music.
4: Mm-hmm. And
3: so, about I was maybe in grade 10, I kind of soft early. Putter down in my classical training. But to me, classical hasn't really absorbed into my identity as much as other people who continue playing it.
2: Mm -hmm. And I think
3: one reason is that I saw it as more of a a means to something else. I was never completely in love with that genre, although there's so much beauty in it, and Mm -hmm. I still do appreciate so much that I've gotten from it. I would never dedicate myself to classical music, and I never felt like I ever did. Mm -hmm. Um, I always thought if I was going to become a musician, it would be doing something else. It would be breaking out of that system, but using the skills that I was so privileged to acquire through that training. In terms of uh, classical spaces, I guess... I have the privilege of feeling semi-comfortable, mm-hmm. for the most part, in them, which many people don't because these spaces are very associated to white, elite, fine art scene. And that's kind of a product of classical music, and that's something I've found problematic about it, because since its inception in, in Western culture, it has been funded and promoted by the ruling wealthy class and religious institutions, primarily the ch- church. And it's a whole system of hierarchy. I, I mean. When people think about Western classical music, they think of orchestras. And when I think of orchestras, I think of the most hierarchical form of music mm-hmm. there is. And you have every musician sitting in their specified section
4: mm-hmm. often
3: ranked, like first violin, second violin, even sometimes third violin, from, from best to worst. And even if you're not ranked, you're often seated from so-called best to so-called worst, defined by the conductor or whoever's in charge of, of that. And then you also have one conductor telling everyone what to do. Yeah. And they're this centralized form of power kind of manipulating the sound. And I don't think that's inherently bad. I mean, when you have so many people, it can be useful. But when it's only that um, force making the major decisions, I find mm. it can be very hierarchical. And, and for me, I mean, it just it just gets boring. Growing up playing classical music, I wasn't as aware um, of, the, of my racial identity, um, not in the sense that I didn't know that I was a second-generation immigrant, but in the sense that I didn't think about its importance in defining my identity and place within society, and especially the relationship between classical music and that. So I was kind of just playing classical music, just learning techniques, and it was all abstracted, and not really explicitly in that cultural context although I feel like some urges to break out of the classical music scene and feelings of discomfort within youth, youth orchestras could have been attributed to that being, um, you know, being being in a space of, of white elitist fine arts. But now looking back, being more aware of that cultural context and my own identity, I often think about not having the opportunity to learn Persian classical music, mm. which is a, a wonderful, beautiful type of music, but really not many resources to learn it. Yeah. especially where I was growing up and even where I am right now. And even the Internet, there there is some stuff there, but not nearly as much of Western classical music. So now I think at this point in my life I can look back and see how I didn't have a full education mm. given my identity musically. Yeah. And a kind of longing for that. I mean, in terms of the dichotomy of of fine art and craft, it's a a funny thing because it's never set in stone. It's always kind of decided the white ruling class, what is fine art and what is craft music. Mm. And, I mean, classical music has always been a fine art of sorts just due to its development through the elite. But then other genres have had this funny transition from being thought of as a craft and being marginalized and pushed away Mm. until it kind of being hip all of a sudden and then white folks. Rushing and claiming it for themselves, and then you know, setting it in, in large concert halls or expensive, classy clubs, and, and charging you at your butt for um, all these all these so-called fine arts. Um, right. But yeah, yeah, it's funny. It's 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 interesting to see how these things always change, and how it's often kind of just white people wanting to validate their own tastes, in a sense.
2: <laughs> oh my gosh, that is like the deep truth. <laughs> they think that that is like really rooted in the theft and commodification of music that is um, kind of anti-classical, uh, Western classical. Uh, and then there's like this fascination or obsession with that. Uh, and then it becomes co-opted. And then you have things like the ways in which now we see the deep anti-black racism perpetuated in popular hip hop culture, the yeah. ways in which like for a, a very obvious example, white hip hop artists are deeply prioritized, like you know the Macklemore's of the music industry. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm also interested in assimilationist narratives around immigration, and what you think that looks like in regards to a lot of like immigrant folks, specifically second generation immigrant folks, feeling like finding themselves in classical music scenes, uh, and what you mm-hmm. think like think like that.
3: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um because if you come as an immigrant and you have your own musical tradition and you don't have a community that has the space for those musical traditions, they often get lost um, within your own kind of personal context. So a lot of, I think a lot of folks who would want to continue playing music often have to branch off in order to play with other people. Right. And I mean, I, I don't know personally too much about what other people do besides myself and, and the people around right, me. But course. it seems like classical may be the go-to realm for that because... If you have the money and you have the, the class privilege, yeah. you can invest um, in lessons and you can invest in joining an orchestra and you have that kind of institutionalized space of playing music. Yeah. Where if you want to play less kind of formal types of music, it's often a space that you need to kind of create for yourself or create with other people that you might not feel comfortable creating um, yeah. to a new country.
2: In our context, within second-generation immigrant um, identities, I think that there is this huge push um, for assimilation within West, like ideals of Western culture, and like also mm-hmm. aiming for some kind of Western cultural success, which is like full yeah. integration and or full understanding. And I feel like there's a lot of pressure then for like specifically immigrant. Parents specifically uh, feeling like, oh, I, if I want my kid to be cult- cultured, or if I want my kid to like have access to art and art scenes, they have to play classical. Of course, there's no other way. And just kind of, I've really reflected about that and thought about that as just like such a such a hard thing and such like a sad thing as that is a symptom of white supremacy and, and assimilationist politics. Do you think that you could talk a little bit about the intersections of elitism? and specifically anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism that shows up in these classical spaces, and then how that then translates to spaces that you're more involved in now, which are jazz scenes that are also rooted, depending on how you're accessing the jazz scene, from potentially classical training.
3: In a lot of classical spaces, you see this kind of appropriation of other cultures Mm. in a way that a lot of bougie white folks do as and they feel good about it in a sense. It's it's like this this way of saying, oh, I I, I know about these cultures. I'm aware and
2: mm-hmm.
3: I'm almost an ally in a sense because I mm-hmm. listen to I don't know Lady Smith Black Mombazo or something, right? Um, without taking any of any any actual deliberate action to kind of center those people within within that musical context. And I mean, you often hear you know choirs singing at churches organized by white folks, choirs primarily white singing you know South African music or or maybe. on on indigenous music and often um, the the actual creators of that music or art forms aren't centered or aren't organizing it or aren't even in the audience. Those dialogues aren't really happening, especially amongst the older folks in classical scenes, which, I mean, there are a lot of. Uh, It's it's a very aging scene. And when you you look at people who organize jazz and classical music, often in in cities they're middle-aged or older, well-established wealthy people, wealthy white people.
2: Mm, That's so... Like that, just that illustration of the choir singing music in like another language is like also just like the crux of multiculturalism or the myth of multiculturalism and I think the context that I'm really familiar with like look at this multiculturalism look we're singing in a language that isn't ours and like actually we're just enacting neocolonization and we're like enacting violence against diaspora populations but look like we live in this like polyethnic and pluralistic society and look at us singing this song like that we have no connection to and I just feel like that's such an illustration of that and like you're so right after that what kind of commitment do those folks have to actually connecting with like non-white folks and like centering BIPOC folks in their spaces and their events is the is the like piece of learning and or the piece of acknowledgement around whose music it is even talked about um and if not who is that for and like what is the education piece there and who is actually being congratulated or celebrated for me, it's like a bunch of liberals patting themselves on the back, being like, oh, "Look sure. at us do, do 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 yes mary do 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 yes Phyllis, like I just it makes me Yeah, wild. For sure.
3: <laughs> yeah it's, it's trying to deal with their white guilt and profit at the same time.
2: Oh my God, the intersection of profiting and also having white guilt and being yeah. like, "I guess we'll just make a multicultural choir, Janice, like I just." Yeah. <laughs>
3: I think an interesting story is, is the one of Charlie Parker when it comes to black folks in classical music and jazz. Um, is Charlie Parker, um, for those of you who don't know, is an extremely influential black jazz musician, and he's famous for inventing this style of music called bebop. And bebop kind of made jazz this virtuosic genre um, with very complex harmony, complex chord changes, very fast-paced improvisation. And people to this day still have difficulty playing in the style of Charlie Parker. He was a huge, huge musician in that sense. Um, And an interesting thing about Charlie Parker was that he was a huge fan and student of classical music. Um, And he was a very, very big fan, especially of of Igor Stravinsky.
2: Mm. And
3: he'd always wanted to play with the classical string section. But until later on in his his career, I think um, five years before his death, he wasn't able to. um, Due to his his uh, racial and, and well, uh, class context.
0: Mm. Um,
3: and then five years before his death, he finally was able to record with, with a full string section. and It was this beautiful album called Bird with String, and it kind of changed the face of jazz in a really beautiful way because strings hadn't been apart since the birth of jazz. And it's was, it was really cool because for those of you who don't know the history of jazz, jazz was birthed in New Orleans through the mixing of field string musicians, often of mixed race, and black musicians playing the blues, and that happened because there were new Jim Crow laws and Spaded, which meant that people who were mixed race um, were then lumped with black folks when it came to segregation, mm-hmm. so they had access to classical music and classical training, and then the black folks had access to blues and the soulful, kind of very roots based way of playing music, and improvisatory mm-hmm. ways of playing music, and, and those came together, and then they kind of went apart again when jazz was born. And they came back together through Charlie Parker that's in the 50s. I think beautiful. that's a really beautiful story. And now now strings are incorporated in, in classical music, in, in jazz music um, to this day. And it's something that I really like looking at, is, is how the classical strings are incorporated into jazz music.
0: Xiao is a second-year journalism student at the University of King's College and she's the FEMFM Twitter gal. Here she is weighing in on her relationship with classical music.
5: My mother immigrated to Canada in 1990. In her first year she carried a notebook everywhere. She wrote down every word she saw. That's how she learned English. In Canada my mother made new friends but she kept her old ones too. Handajia is my auntie. I've known her my entire life. She wore big earrings, bright red lipstick, and when she spoke, her voice would boom. My auntie recommended Ling Laoshi, my first piano teacher. I was three years old when I stepped into her home and played my first note. It wasn't love at first sight, but the more I played, the better I became. I grew to love Sunday afternoons. Ling Laoshi raised stray cats in her backyard, and sometimes they spilled inside. They lounged on the staircase in nooks and would brush up against my legs as I played my scales. Ling Laoshi was strict. She emphasized discipline and practice. I played until my fingers bled. Look, I would say, holding up my bruised, broken fingers. Look at how hard I'm trying. But Lao should never let up. It had to be perfect. I won Kiwana's competitions. I played recitals in front of my whole school. I impressed all the parents of my white friends. But it wasn't enough. There was always someone who won more competitions, practiced more hours, or was invited to be coached by Long Long, the most famous Chinese pianist. So, I quit. I picked up the flute for a couple years and the euphonium after that, but no other instrument ever quite made me feel the same way. For years, I thought I had disappointed my mother. I was not the cardboard cutout that all Chinese children seemed to fit. And it wasn't until much later did I realize that my mother felt the same way. I'm not tiger mom, she said. You are not tiger daughter. My mother understood. She had bought a beautiful grand piano a few months back and didn't regret her decision. She was never disappointed that I gave it all up. I still play when I go home. My fingers remember where they used to go. And sometimes when I play a perfect song, I can still feel the blood on my fingertips, a cat's tail around my ankle, and my mother's crinkle-eyed smile.
0: Nick Dorado is a Femi Brown fairy engineer, ocean scientist, and music worker who expends his energy rocking and fighting like a tiny boat on a terrible ocean with a tiger in it. His priority was always making a big, joyful sound and making it back to the beach, so it's a wonder anything else gets done at all.
4: Hey, Nick. Hi. You're a multi-instrumentalist. When did you start playing? My mom put
6: us, uh, me and my, I have a twin brother, put us in a specific kind of like music learning program. Uh, For young people And my mom put us in that When we were like five years old It's like learning music Through interpretive dance And playing toys and stuff You know Cool Uh, And then I started playing piano With a really amazing 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 piano teacher When I was seven years old And that's like when I started Playing classical music
4: How has your relationship To music evolved Since your love of jazz music Blossomed Like how did you find yourself Within that genre as a brown
6: musician i was really influenced by the radio when i was growing up loved everything on the radio the, from the backstreet boys to the classic rock radio stations and i'm a curious curious person so in learning about the history of the music like how it's all related it absolutely essentially brings you back to black classical music
4: Black classical music. Okay, there's a good Nina, well, like a small Nina Simone quote where she says, jazz is a white term to define black people. My music is black classical music. What does that mean to you?
6: Yeah, my favorite one is uh, when Gil Scott Heron said that uh, jazz is a word that white people invented so that they could put all black music at the same part of the records At the back of the... It's true. I mean, like, uh, that's sort of the relationship between, uh, like, all colonized people and their colonizers. That like the, their authority-based relationships and power-based relationships and part of the way to control the narrative around what jazz music was, why it existed in America, why black people, why colonized people were making music in America and what that meant was to control the narrative around it.
4: The authority of like the critic comes into play and in helping maintain those hierarchies. Like to you, like in what ways does jazz music subvert Western classical music? Because I know it is like inherently political, but like what are the other ways that you
6: believe it does that? Yes, I, I would say by taking the forms in Western classical music and br- like breaking them open. To me, what I find the most interesting is the role of improvisation in jazz music, which moves again the center of authority in the music where the player gets to be the authority of the music instead of the authority coming from the top down from the composition. That's a neat way to look at it. Well I mean so much of what they were doing was trying to rediscover like African heritage, rediscover the value systems that were part of their communities. The improvising element was is like the most foundational and fundamental element in the music as well because that's sort of where it came from.
4: Improv is, like, inherent to your own, like,
6: musical practice.
4: Yeah. How do you use that as a jumping point for discovery in your work?
6: The model of improvisation comes from the really deep philosophy and tradition. Music that's created spontaneously, mm-hmm. you can't as readily sell a piece of improvised music, for example. Like, improvised music is a philosophy into and of itself, and as you work with it you like learn a lot about control and like as you want to learn more and more about how people become master improvisers you become thrown back into the traditions like of all the great improvised musics of the world which come from all the indigenous cultures.
4: You describe yourself as like a brown femi fairy. How does your queerness come into play as a
6: performer? I'm really fascinated by a lot of queer performers knowing how much of the aesthetic and the forms of music have come from queer communities of color in America is really exciting to me, mm. and it's part of a way to just pay tribute and homage and celebrate that music by like understanding and learning about that part of its history. And then also, where music is really about roles, I think that the like fundamental parts of queerness are about challenging the rigidity of those roles. Mm. And I think that that's something that's just like inherent to the queer identity.
4: What are like important teachings that have helped you find your way to carve like the musical endeavors you do?
6: Everything that you're doing is coming from a tradition. It's something that you've inherited. Being able to respect that takes a lot of the pressure off of you. So for me it's like really about celebrating like the great tradition of music. One of the great improvisers in the 20th century, in my opinion, is an artist named Pauline Oliveros, who is a queer female musician from America who invented uh, a sort of practice called deep listening to get deeper into that way of working with sound. And a lot of the teachers that I had in Halifax were really deeply influenced by Pauline Oliveros. So it was actually her exercises that I used when I was working on making a choir. And it wasn't
4: even necessarily like you were working towards like a goal of yeah, preparing a song that you would build for the masses, but it was really about like creating a sense of community and trust, hey?
6: Yeah. And like music is something that you have to experience. It's not an intellectual pursuit. So to try to get everybody to participate in an exercise together teaches people about their fear, their relationship to the authority over the sounds that they make, the relationship that they have to each other. And then every group that I've ever done it with is also totally different.
4: As somebody who has like taken music classes since there were five, what does it feel like to be in a space of authority? How do you try to challenge yourself as a teacher and a mentor?
6: Part of the way that uh, one of my music teachers, Jerry Grinelli, talks about it is the idea that, like, all music is a tradition, and then what, it's like a thread that goes way, way back into time, mm-hmm. and what teachers and mentors do is connect you to that thread, and then part of the responsibility of being connected to that thread is that you then continue to connect people to that thread of ancient music.
4: Has it, like, helped you get in touch with your own, like, indigeneity as, like, someone who's a part of, like, a
6: diaspora? Yeah, I mean, that's, like, one of the most interesting parts of making music for me now. Like, knowing how much the work that we do as musicians focuses on the past, focuses on the traditions that we've inherited, and then to be doing music in a place like Canada that carries, like, so heavily the weight of its colonial traditions. I mean, that's, like, a big part of the reason why I still find it interesting to be a part of the Canadian music landscape. The place that my family comes from is a place called Goa which is on the west coast of India. And it's like, it's a tropical paradise. Um, and there's like lots of joy in the music and like lots of joy in those kinds of places. And mm-hmm. I like, that's my, one of my favorite things to explore in my music. And I find often too, that if I explore that to the extent that I feel really stimulated by it, that it's very confusing for people in North America. Like one thing that I think is really interesting for Femme FM just in general uh-huh. is in learning about a lot of the music that we take part in, we don't really learn about the femme history of the, like, amazing femme
4: masters. Yeah, who's, like, paved the way, yeah.
6: Yeah, and, like, again, really specifically with jazz music, that a whole part, like, a really big part of the language of jazz music has, like, comes from trying to understand and emulate the the voices of black women, the great voices of the black female church, the voices of of women from spirituals and then we come upon somebody like Billie holiday uh who comes from that tradition Mm -hmm. who in her approach to music just undoubtedly has a toolkit that nobody has ever come to the music with before Mm -hmm. and then people like Louis armstrong and miles davis and charlie like the greatest people who we know a lot about um oh so much of the way that they explored form and harmony to people like Billie Holiday, because they were just trying to understand how she could do what she was doing.
4: Do you have any final words, my friend? My dear?
6: It's an amazing tradition to learn about. Like Music always speaks to the experience of people in the world. Mm -hmm. And part of what's so amazing to me about the Black classical tradition is that even though there was a very, very concerted effort to erase its reality, that effort failed. And now we have artists like Dev Hines and Kendrick Lamar who are like understanding their connection to it, who are like re, who are unearthing some of these names. We're like having a kind of renaissance of jazz musicians and Mm -hmm. we're seeing that aesthetic like return
4: and being and like, only... shared with the masses too With songs that are politically charged
6: Exactly, so it's not only returning that aesthetic But bringing that aesthetic back and placing it in context So it's obviously really clearly that the music is a weapon That colonized people use to place their mark on history And as long as you're interested and you keep chasing into the history You will find it everywhere in the world
0: Today, you heard music from Princess Nokia, Tona Brown, the Aida String Ensemble, Black Violin, Chris Dirksen, and Tanya Tagak. Our producers are Allie Graham and Maddie Haslam. Carmela Faragwash, guest host on today's episode, does show outreach and assists with script writing.
1: Leanne Shao runs the official FemFM Twitter, and Julia Simone Rutgers is getting our Tumblr up and running. You can check out our past episodes at soundcloud.com slash Halifax. and soon we'll be moving to iTunes, where you can also subscribe to the podcast.
0: Thank you again to our incredible guests, Isaiah, Leanne, and Nick. And, and thank, thank you, you for, for tuning, tuning in. in. <laughs>